We're eventually going to find our way to Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel chapter 37, but I'm going to spend a lot of our time um, talking to, uh, talking about my trip in Cuba and just sharing what that was like. Um, at Grace Campus, this was a Zach Byler length sermon, not a Holden Garrett like sermon. So let's see if we can find our way in between. I, I do, in all seriousness though, I want to say thanks to Zach and to Holden for um, being in the pulpit. God is raising up uh, some teachers and preachers in our community that aren't me, and that is healthy. It is healthy for us to have a church that is built on multiple voices and not one. And so uh, thanks to them. I listened to both of their sermons. Um, they were both profound. Um, I have notes in my journal of some pieces that they said. I loved when Holden said that the Holy Spirit is our companion in times like we're having as we're thinking about Chris and Sydney as they're, and, and the loss of Savannah, that he is our, he's the partner and our companion in moments when we don't know how to pray. I loved when Zach said, if God has something for us to know, I want it. And so that's really kind of what we're gathering around and thinking about um, in this series on the Holy Spirit, his person, his presence. I'm going to talk a little bit about his power because that's basically what um, I, I got to see um, the other day. So I want to talk a little bit about what I saw, what we did, uh, what's going on in Cuba. Um, I, I do want to boldly say I really think that I would love us to pray. No, I want us to pray as a church to see if God might lead us to develop a long-term partnership with churches in Cuba. Um, we have resources that can make a lot of things even a little easier for them as they engage in profoundly challenging ministry. Um, and uh, my hope is that you will get to meet Pastor Guillermo and Pastora Adria here at the end of February. They're going to be in Dayton, uh, should be in Dayton at the end of February. So I'm hoping we can steal them for about 24 hours, which in Cuba means 36 hours. Um, there is no timeliness in Cuba. Their breakfast would be at 9 and we ate at 10.15. So um, you kind of just get used to it. Um, I went to Cuba uh, to fulfill requirements for my master's degree, um, of which I am thankfully in my last semester right now. Um, United Theological Seminary, which is where I go, it's in Dayton. They have had a relationship with the Methodist Church in Cuba for about five or six years. Um, that relationship is primarily through uh, Guillermo and Adria. Guillermo um, pastors, the, and Guillermo and Adria, it, there was something very familiar about Cuban culture in husbands and wives together, which is how Steph and I are trying to live our lives. Um, so Guillermo and Adria together lead the Havana Central Methodist Church, while Guillermo simultaneously is the district superintendent for the Havana Central District, meaning he, that he oversees a few dozen churches in and around Havana. Um, during our time there, we visited about 14 of those churches. Um, some of them we worshipped in. Some of them we just drove and got to meet the pastor and the pastora, um, got to pray for them. Every church that we went to, we blessed them with a gift of about uh, a gift of money. I'm going to be very intentional to leave some gaps out as this is going to go on the internet deal. Because the less the government of Cuba and the less the government of the United States know, the better. So, Uncle Sam, if you're listening, this one's for you. So, we blessed them with some money. We would pray. And the gift that we gave them was significant uh, when you consider that pastors in Cuba make $15 a month. Uh, and say a box of powdered milk, which is a staple, can cost anywhere between 5 and $8. Um, so, they're just really living in remarkably 
challenging circumstances. We would go to these churches, we would pray for them. Some of them were established churches. Some of them were what they called missions, um, where they're trying to establish a church in a new neighborhood. In almost every case, uh, that church met in a home. So the, the government of Cuba does not let Christians build new churches. So what they do is they buy houses and they knock out some walls and that's where they worship. And then the pastor, the pastora and their family also live in that space. So talk about boundaries, you know what I'm saying? And uh, there's none, there's no boundaries in Cuban culture whatsoever. I have never been hugged and kissed so much in my life. And like one hug and kiss in the morning does not get you through to the end of the day, right? So every time you come and every time you leave, it's let's hug, let's kiss, let's be affectionate. Uh, I'm a physical touch guy, so I was here for it. You know what I mean? And uh, that was great. Um, so we would go to these houses. I mean, one church that we went to in, in Regla, the pastor and his wife are living in what is essentially a bombed out warehouse. Um, they have built a, a wall out of plywood that kind of stands up and goes down the middle of the space and they live on one side and they worship on the other but they know that at any minute the roof could collapse in on them and their children um, and they're just doing it the night that we went there we worshiped with them this was last sunday night two sundays ago we worshiped with them um, and then uh, the next day we went back there was a group from arkansas with us that supports the regular church so we were kind of looking they're doing some new construction and stuff like that um, and the pastor and his wife made us this huge meal. And immediately my thought was two things. First of all, Jesus praises people who give out of their poverty instead of their excess, and that's what they did. And the second thing was, I thought to myself, we just gave you money and you just made us food with it, right? But that's the kind of like hospitality and generosity that we were talking about. Um, I didn't expect this. I gained weight in Cuba um, because every meal was a carb city, right? Like here's some rice with some beans. Uh, but then for lunch and dinner, we ended, I don't know how, every night with cake, every, one of, every lunch with cake, every dinner with cake, every lunch with ice cream, every dinner with ice cream. Um, then we found a gelato place that we visited three times in two days. So, um, oops. And, um, and so I call stuff. I said, I'm like, I'm gaining, my shirts were tighter when I, packed them. I mean, they were looser when I packed them, you know what I mean? Um, but their hospitality is just unreal. So we're going to these churches. Um, we worshiped at a few. I got to preach at a church called Santa Fe, um, which was really, really fun because uh, they, uh, they talk back at you a lot, which was cool. And uh, doing it through translating is fun. Um, we uh, went to two prayer nights at Havana Central, which is where we were kind of based. And um, prayer is just happening in, in Cuba. It's just happening. So Havana Central Church, and this is not uncommon in all the churches there, Havana Central Church has a prayer meeting, they call it vigil, from 9.30 p.m. till 12 a.m. They have a potty break, then they go from 12 a.m. to 7 a.m. Often it bleeds until 9. And, and someone asked me, is that because Cubans have no, nothing else to do? Um, and there, there could be maybe a tiny element of that because in a failed communist socialist state, everybody has jobs, but nobody works them. Um, but we make time for what we want to make time for. I mean, they're still tired when they wake up. I love you guys. I can barely get you in here for an hour and five minutes. You know what I mean? And they're like locked in, right, to pray. And actually, before the prayer gathering started, people would be there praying. Before worship started, people would be there praying. After worship ended, people would be there praying. I mean, these people are hungry for God's presence. 
right? And we tend to approach God, especially with an American mindset of what can God do for me? Some of us, hyper-spiritual, will say, what can I do for God? I will go be a missionary. I will go serve people. I'll tell people about Jesus. They just want to be with God. Psalm 73 says, as for me, it is good to be near God. I mean, it was powerful. It was powerful um, just to watch that hunger and to see how God is moving. And God is moving. I mean, the Havana Methodist Church, which was started by the United Methodist Church, but separated from it because of the revolution that happened in the 50s. Um, uh, the Methodist Church in Cuba has grown by 300% in 13 years. Hang on, 17 years, 300%. Um, there are about 80,000 people who worship every weekend with them. Um, me membership in the Cuban Methodist Church is over 51,000 people. In 2003, it was 12,000 people. They are in the midst of a gangbusters, slobber knockered revival. It is unreal. It is unreal. And so we would do worship, we would go pray with people, and after many of the worship services that we did, at the end of the gathering time, which by the way would be two, three, four, four and a half hours, almost every night we didn't go to bed till 1 a.m. Um, the night that I preached at the church in Santa Fe, um, worship was supposed to start at 7, which means we left Havana Central at 7.30. Um, my goal in 2020 is to eliminate hurry from my life, eliminate hurry. I was in Cuba for three hours, and I thought, this is going to do it, because um, <laughs> there's just no hurrying anywhere. So we leave at 7.30 to be somewhere we're supposed to be at 7, and our car broke down, the bus broke down twice. I mean, spiritual warfare was real. We get there, they have been worshiping for two and a half hours. It had to be 105 degrees in that building. I've never sweat so much as I have sweat in Cuba, and... Um, we worshiped for another 45 minutes after we got there, two hours late. Um, I started preaching at about 9.45. We drove away at about 11.55 midnight. Um, unreal. It's just unreal. That was a Saturday night, by the way. The next morning, they were going to get up and do it again. Um, so at the end of all these gatherings, we would do uh, what we would call ministry time. And uh, that meant the team from our seminary, there were about 10 of us, uh, including some faculty, um, we would, people could come forward to be prayed for. Um, we had two translators for about 10 or 11 people. So more often than not, you are praying for somebody and they can't tell you what's going on. You can't ask what's going on. You're kind of just praying. And it's almost like prayer hide and seek uh, because you kind of just start praying and then you start to get a sense. You're kind of listening to the Holy Spirit while you're praying, uh, while you're praying and, and, and then you're kind of getting a sense of what you should be praying for. Um, and, and for the record, I want to go down. I push you out of your comfort zones a lot. I spent 11 days outside of my comfort zone, okay? Um, and that's not just because I was solicited by a male and a female prostitute at separate incidences. I've still got it. And, um, uh, and uh, no, uh, it was because in Cuba, we don't flush toilet paper. You know how in your bathroom, in your bath, I know, in, in your bathroom, uh, your wives, men, our wives put these little garbage cans in our bathrooms, don't they? I, my roommate and I had one of those. Uh, we were renting a room from someone, uh, and we just thought that's where we put garbage. On day 10 of our 11-day trip, David Watson, the academic dean who's leading the trip, goes, he, my roommate Joe says, like, what is with that little garbage can? He goes, well, that's what the toilet paper's for. We had been flushing the toilet paper the whole time. And... Um, Oopsie whoopsie. And um, so like not only like that and the smells and the 
prostitution, but I mean, people come forward that first Sunday morning that we're there for prayer. And I mean, somebody lays their hand on a guy, prays for him, he just goes down. This is what's commonly called being slain in the spirit. Uh, an experience that I am now totally accustomed to because I had to watch like 100 bodies hit the floor over this time. And um, the whole time I'm thinking, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with myself. Do you know what I mean? I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but it's good because God moves. So we, we go and we do this. And, and here's what being slain in the spirit means. I have many questions for people who's named are Ken Shea and Art Cooper and about five other people because I'm not sure what I think about this yet. But um, uh, uh, so being slain in the spirit, I'm taking it as some people were so overcome by the presence of God, they couldn't stay on their feet any longer. They were so overcome by the presence of God, they couldn't stay on their feet any longer. And so... Um, you know, I was a little cynical about it. My roommate and I were a little cynical about it when we started noticing like it happening to like the same people over and over again. But at the same time, um, two stories. Uh, one would be um, uh, last Sunday morning, uh, a young couple came forward for prayer. I found out after they'd only recently started attending the church. I'm praying for them, and I really start to feel like for the guy in particular, I needed to pray against a lie that he believed which was that being a Christian is not masculine. Being a Christian is not masculine. So as I'm praying for him, I say the following sentence. In Jesus' name, I declare freedom from this lie. And as I say the word freedom, he just falls flat backwards. Um, somebody caught him. Um, but um, he doesn't speak English, so he can't have like been waiting for the moment. I wasn't having my hand on his head pushing him to the ground. I just prayed that happened. And we stood up and we talked after a while. I kept praying for him. Then he stood up, we talked for a while. Um, and uh, there was another time when I was praying for somebody, I mean, and um, we saw them healed, okay? And there was a guy who came to the last prayer night, which we didn't even have to go to, but I was like, I'm in Cuba. Hey, it's Cuba, man. That's also what Cubans say to Americans all the time, to English speakers. He's Cuba, man. He's Cuba. Um, hey, he's Cuba, man. And... Um, uh, we, uh, so this guy comes to the prayer night and, um, he has one leg that's shorter than the other. And, uh, we watched as we prayed for him, his leg go, whoop. um, and then he stood up and was like, I can't see. So, um, we, we, we pray over his eyes. And then he says through the translator, he says, I've had an itch. I've had a bug bite on my leg that I've not been able to I've had it for 14 years and it itches. And we're, we're trying to figure out what the heck he's talking about. So David, our academic dean, says, put your, um, put your hands where it is. And the guy puts his hand over. And full of the spirit, I can't help but go, <laughs> a little bit. Um, just saying, holy laughter. And uh, so we start praying for this guy. We did not lay hands, you know, on the area in question. Um, we pray for this guy, and afterward, he starts jumping up and down, jumping up and down, says, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. I mean, we saw people delivered of demons. We saw tumors shrink. We saw back pain go away. We saw eyesight restored. We saw more than one leg go, whoop, like before, like, whoop. It's weird. It's crazy. Um, and, and here's the deal, by the way. You can choose whether or not this is legit. I have no reason to lie to you, nor does anybody on my team have any reason to lie to me about what they experienced, nor do the Cubans have any reason to lie. Listen, in Cuba, you take earplugs to the hospital because while you sleep, little cockroaches are going to crawl in your ears. Okay? When you go to the hospital, you have no idea if they're going to have the antibiotic you're prescribed. 
Their doctors are well-trained, but their machinery doesn't work and they're, and they're filthy. Um, you don't lie about being healed of something if the only way that you can be healed of it is by being prayed for. And uh, what God is doing among them is, is nothing short of revival, which is remarkable when you think about the challenges that the Cuban people are facing. So those challenges are kind of sourced in three places. Um, a failed communist government, a failed communist socialist state, um, um, uh, economic challenges that come from, uh, frankly, our nation's policy of embargo toward Cuba over 60 years, and then spiritual stuff. I mean, um, listen, if you, if you want to vote left in the next election, that's great. Let's just get you to a failed socialist state for about a month. And here's what we'll do is we'll drive around Cuba, we'll drive around Havana for an hour looking for soda and not find it. Um, uh, that's what we did. We, the bishop was coming, um, the bishop of Cuba, because it was the 136th anniversary of, of, um, of Havana Central Church. And all of the pastors in the district were coming, so they wanted to get pop uh, for them. And they don't get any American imports, so it's from Mexico, Tucala. And uh, um, so we, somebody grabs me, literally one of the Cubans of the church just grabs me. Now I'm on the church bus. I'm the only English speaker because it was two liter bottles. It was two liter bottles per person. So the more people, you know, you had to go. So we're going to government store after government store after government store because that's where it's cheaper. You could buy it private, but it would have been like five times the cost. So... Um, because the reason I know that, by the way, is we saw somebody walking with it and like drove to meet them and they're yelling out the window. I don't know what's happening. It's all happening in Spanish. Uh, but they're like, oh, they bought it privately. So it was probably about $10 instead of about one. And um, so we drive, we, in over an hour, I'm driving around central Havana. Um, all of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, I'm the only person from my team. Wow, I'm the only one uh, here that speaks English. Wow, I've not seen this many police agents and this entire trip until just now. Um, uh, so we drive around, we're looking for Coke. We can't find it anywhere. I'm just saying, like socialism doesn't all it's cracked up to be when like it costs $300 to buy a toilet seat right now in Cuba. Um, you will go to government stores. We did not find coffee, which is like super common there. Um, you could not find coffee until the last day of the trip is when we found it. It was just stuff on the market will just disappear. Um, and the government forbids them from buying new churches. The government is cracking down on Cubans, Cuban churches in particular, because when they tried to legalize homosexuality, the Cuban churches said no. Um, and so now they're all being heavily investigated all the time. Um, the church is always aware that anytime a new person comes to their church, what they're, you know what they're wondering? It's not, oh, look at what the Lord, I wonder what the Lord's doing. They're wondering, I wonder if this is a government spy. I wonder if this is a government spy. Um, because they're aware that when Americans come, we're bringing money with us, and the government wants to get their hands on that. Interesting. Um, the economic challenges, and, and I have no problem saying this either, because I'm hitting everybody. I mean, our economic policy of embargo against Cuba has done nothing but crush the Cuban poor. Has done nothing but crush the Cuban poor. Fidel had no problem getting anything that he wanted. But our policy of embargo, which by the way, that means that uh, since about 19, since the Kennedy administration, there have been no good American goods imported into Cuba. They just got internet two years ago. They just got internet two years ago. Now they have the Cuban version of the voice. So, um, and there is a, there is a channel in Cuba that runs, uh, Spanish translated CSI Miami 
episodes, 24 all, all day. It's the only thing on the channel. I don't know why. Yeah, isn't that bizarre? Um, but uh, it's done nothing but crush the Cuban poor. I mean, it is impossible for them. I mean, they cannot find the most basic goods. Um, the biggest moment of culture shock I've had since I've been back was when I went to Walmart. And I saw in that one building more stuff than I saw the entire time that I was there. It's unreal. It's absolutely unreal. And that is nothing, those two things, the governmental obstacles by a failed state that is actively persecuting Christians, um, a policy of embargo by the, the Western Hemisphere's like, largest producer of goods, compares nothing to the spiritual warfare that we saw there. I am not a spiritually sensitive person, okay? I am not one to walk into a space and be like, oh, I just, okay. I stepped off the plane and was hit by a tidal wave of, an, of a feeling of oppression, um, it was unreal. And um, if you've been to like Africa or if you've been to other places in South America, um, if you've been to Southeast Asia, there's always a form of like voodoo religion. And in Cuba, um, there's this one called Pilo, Pilo Mayumbe, which is like up in the mountains. But in Cuba, like in Havana, uh, Santeria is very common. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Vanessa because she knows this culture. And so... Um, uh, it, it is this kind of folk Catholicism intermixed with what is ultimately worship of demons. Um, and so you would see these um, initiates in Santeria uh, wear all white, which in like a place like Cuba is very interesting. We're like, we don't all have washing machines and stuff like that. Um, but like I'm talking white shirt, white pants, white shoes, white socks. Like one guy had a white fanny pack, like all the way, all the way head to toe. And they're wearing beaded jewelry was the only color. They wear that every day for a year. Um, and and, and uh, at the lower levels, it's not so expressly evil. It's uh, Santeria people, practice, uh, people who follow Santeria are able to own government stores. Uh, so there's a financial getting ahead kind of piece to it. Christians aren't allowed to own government stores. Um, Christians pay more for everything in Cuba, by the way, than, non, than Santeria people do. It's crazy. And um, um, so Santeria, though, it's not uncommon as it starts to get darker to see the people wearing an all-white with a rock like kind of chained or tied to their ankle or that they'll be forced to crawl through the streets on all fours. Um, Susanna, who was with us, saw someone rolling through the street. It's an act of penance. Um, Santeria marked territory by putting dead chicken carcasses or pig heads on street corners. And when we would walk to the church a few days of the trip, we saw like chicken carcasses on the street corner. Um, Santeria people, uh, as it gets higher up in it, end up inviting dead spirits or demons to come live in them. So one woman at the church who was new to the church, her husband started practicing Santeria he invited the spirit of, an, of a dead woman into his body. And after that, he began cross-dressing. He had never done that before. He started dressing like a woman. Um, one pastor that we talked to, um, one pastor that we talked to uh, practiced Santeria in his youth. And after he had his first child, um, the demon that would accompany him. Because when you get in the higher levels of this, you're, just, you're walking with principalities and powers. I mean, you're just dealing directly with the most evil. Um, the demon told him that if he threw his baby into the ocean, it would give him power. We saw a two-year-old girl who was wearing a little bracelet, and after we got in the bus, Susanna said that bracelet means that her parents have already promised her to a demon. She's two years old. Um, and I'm going to get political again. Um, 
it seems to me that the enemy, the enemy is profoundly uncreative, right? And so the way that he, and, it, and this hit me like a ton of bricks, it didn't even take a minute for me to think about this, is that um, because infant sacrifice is not uncommon, it's not common in Santeria, but it's not unheard of. Um, and remember also, uh, they will, uh, Santeria people will promise you that they'll like heal your diseases, and they will. I mean, if you read the book of Exodus, Pharaoh has these magicians who um, can perform similar miracles to what Moses did. And so they can kind of give a measure of kind of miraculous, but at a certain cost. So that's also why people do it. That's why people maybe promise their children and stuff. But the enemy's tactic is to get us to, to go after the most vulnerable in any society he'll do this. And, it, and, it, and, and, in, and in Cuba, it's we'll sacrifice our infants. And in America, we've legalized it and it's called abortion. Um, and if you had an abortion, I don't mean to say that to like shame you or like curse you in any way. All I'm saying is that the enemy's primary goal um, is to get us to like um, harm the unborn, to harm the most vulnerable. Um, and he is profoundly uncreative. I mean, there's a part of you that goes, is that your only trick? You know, but, it, but it's working. And um, I, Steph and I were talking, my understanding is that someone at the Oscars um, stood up and said, I had an abortion when I was young and that's how I got to where I am. The enemy is trading the life of the newly born or the life of the unborn for power. And he's just doing it in a variety of ways. I was pro-life before I came on this trip and then I'm leaving and I'm like, let's go. Like, set, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's saddle up our horses on this because um, it's unreal. And the spiritual oppression is so crazy. And I mean, we're, we're at the first prayer night and I'm just kind of reading a psalm. And it talks about in the presence of my enemies. I think I was reading Psalm 23. You prepare, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Okay, when people outside are walking by the church and they want to curse you, it means a lot different things to read in the presence of my enemies than when I'm just like sitting in my room reading my Bible, doesn't it, right? And, and the enemy is no more hard at work there than he is here. He's just covert about it. He's gotten our culture to adopt the lie of secular progressivism, and so he doesn't need to work that hard. Um, but the power of God, I mean, here's what I saw in Cuba. I saw people, I saw people absolutely hungry for the word of God. I taught, um, I taught young adult, I taught the youth, Sunday school youth being like 17 to 30-ish. Um, Every one of them had their Bibles open. A Bible in Cuba costs $50. Every one of them had their Bibles open. Every one of them never talked to the person next to them. Every one of them never broke eye contact with me. Not one of them ever pulled out their phone and looked at it, looked away from it. As I was teaching, they would not, they could not get enough. They could not get enough. It was actually really easy to preach because I thought if I bomb it, they won't care because it's just God's word, right? And, um, they're just so, and they're so hungry for God. They're so prayerful. They're so dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why they're seeing, that's why they're seeing revival. And, and um, I shared this with some of you that are in my huddle, um, that what I came back with was, here's the conviction I've always had. The conviction I've always had is, um, I want absolutely, and Zach said it, I want absolutely everything God has for me. I want to experience to the fullest degree everything Jesus has made available to me. The category of what has Jesus made available to me is just bigger for me now than it was before I left. And I'm not saying, like, let's start getting people slain in the spirit like this Sunday. In fact, um, I could, my mind could change on this because my mind is constantly changing on everything it feels like anymore. But um, um, I, I would be fine if slain in the spirit was not like a normal part of our practice as a church. But I would love to see people delivered of stuff. I would love to see healing 
I would love to see um, the Holy Spirit moving in power in our midst. I mean, here, here's what happened to me um, was I really found that I am not the best person to be praying for healing. Like they brought a little girl to me who is six. Um, this is going to be Zach Byler length, so just settle in. Um, um, they brought a little girl to me who's six who has um, some developmental disabilities. They used the R word, but their PC is not a thing in Cuba. And uh, I, my first thought was, I do not have the faith to pray that this little girl can get better. I can't. I just don't. I'm like looking around at my other team. I'm like, there's some super spiritual people here. Um, where are they? Um, and I'm thinking I can pray an eloquent prayer of, of like, you know, steadfastness and suffering over the mom, but I, I don't know if I can do much else. But I will say if I kind of took second seat and would pray kind of for the person praying and for the person being prayed for, I would get crystal clear words and images for people. Um, and they're talking in Spanish, so I have no idea. So we're praying for this woman, and I'm praying for her, and I just am thinking about Samuel, what we preach about in the summer, and I'm thinking about how Samuel is just always near to the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, and I could, like, see Samuel's little feet as a little boy, like, scampering through the tabernacle to, like, meet the Lord's needs and to serve, and I said to her, I said, listen, the Lord sees you like he sees Samuel. He sees you moving so quickly to serve and honor him and to be near him, and he just want to let you know that, like, he loves you and he sees you, and that, like, is a blessing to him. She starts weeping, and then we find a translator, and through the translator, she's telling me all about how she's just been radically discouraged and not wanting to do anything anymore and, and really been getting really mad at God and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, that happened to me about six or eight times where I would get like this, here's the word, prophetic word for someone while we were praying. Um, and at the end, one of my teachers prayed over me. He was like, Kyle, I just like call out the gift of prophecy in you. And I was like, that's weird, but okay. You know what I mean? I'll take, if that's, if Jesus has it for me, I'll take it, you know? And, um, and so I want to look just for a minute this morning um, at Ezekiel 37 because it's kind of a picture of revival. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit's power because that's what we saw. And, and this is what I would say too. Let me say this. And then I'll hit the, if we develop a partnership with Cuba, here's why I want to do that. They have, these churches are, are living the lifestyle we want to live as a church. Okay, these are, they know what it is to be comfortable in the presence of God. They know what it is to persevere in prayer. They know what it is to live in revival. They know how to empower young people. There's a 15-year-old there that can preach better than I can, who preaches regularly from the pulpit. He's the only Christian in his family. Precious. He's a great kid, 15 years old. They know almost every person on the platform that Sunday was under 40. It was crazy. I was so amazed by it. Uh, Audria says at one point, there's a couple in their church that's getting a divorce. By the way, in the Cuban Methodist church, there is a literal written rule that says, if you get a divorce, you can't be in any ministry for a year. Um, Cuban Methodists don't smoke. Cuban Methodists don't drink. Cuban Methodists don't have tattoos. They don't have piercings. Um, I mean, it's kind of old school holiness in a way, right? And you wonder, I, I, you can't help but wonder if, in becoming lax to be culturally relevant if we've missed out on something is something I've been wondering about. And, um, and so uh, where was I going with this? So they've got all this worship team. Oh, Audrey is talking about this couple in their church that's getting divorced. And she's like, I've been up till one and two in the morning, multiple nights trying to like help them work out their marriage difficulties. Listen, I love you, but like, I do not belong to you between the hours of 10 PM and like 6 AM. You know what I'm saying? Like, and again, all of my training was like, but 
boundaries, self-care, you know what I mean, all these kinds of things. And, uh, but she, and then she said, but when you invest in people, when you invest in people's lives and you pour into them, God never wastes that. I called staff, I was like, this, these are our people. So I, listen, if we can give them money, because that's real, we have nothing to teach them. We have nothing to teach them. Um, they have everything to teach us. I just want to have a partnership with Cuba because I want them to go teach us. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so, because um, they're just living, they're living and walking in renewal and revival in a way that is so compelling. So let's look at, at Ezekiel 37 for a mere 45 minutes and go from there, okay? This is Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel's an Old Testament prophet. I'll tell you a little bit about him in a second, but this is what he says in Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, O Yahweh God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, I'm sorry, I'm a little sniffly too. I don't know if you noticed the weather here is different than in Cuba. So it's been a little bit of an adjustment. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. Verse 8, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. Sinews are the things that hold us together. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the slain, and, uh, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. Notice this, an exceedingly great army. Armies have work to do. Yeah? There's no like belonging to an army, but not participating. You're just, you're working. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel becomes a prophet at about age 30. At 25, he is deported from the land of Israel, from Judah. He's deported and taken into exile with the royal family, with some artisans, some craftsmen, kind of all who's who in Israel. This was a common practice for the Babylonians. They would take you out of your land and put you somewhere else. So Ezekiel wakes up one day in his homeland and then later wakes up to find himself 
away from his father's house, away from the temple of the Lord, and a place that they do not speak the language, whose customs are unlike his. And the Israelites are kind of finding themselves, God's people are kind of finding themselves with all of this pressure on all sides to become like those around them, to become like those around them, to take on the culture, to become inhabited, not just to be near the culture, but to like take it into themselves. And here's what's interesting about Ezekiel, by the way. Ezekiel was born in about 622 BC, which is the same year that King Josiah, who's kind of one of the last great kings of Israel, he finds the book of the law in the temple and leads a renewal and a revival uh, of the worship of the Lord uh, in, in Israel. And here's what's, why that's interesting to me is if you're like one of the people in the room who kind of remember the years of the moral majority, um, so like we remember this time where like our nation kind of took this Christian turn and we reestablished a, a moral center. And then maybe if you remember even like the Bush two years, like if you're a millennial, millennial you only ever remember exile. But if you're like a, a, a boomer, you remember like these high points of Christian of, the, of Christianity in our culture, Ezekiel gets that. Ezekiel has that same experience of like remembering these high points, but also finding himself in exile. And he, he feels that whiplash of a culture that a lot of us feel when like it seems like overnight with, with like some changes in our culture that we're no longer speaking the same language, right? I mean, the church used to kind of set the tone. Christianity used to set the tone for our culture in the United States. That is no longer. It really, it really isn't. Secular progressivism has taken over with its resistance to meta-narrative, which means um, most people, even here in small-town America, resist the idea that there is one story behind all those stories that say what is true and what is right. I mean, this is the era of authenticity where I get to define my own truth. I get to follow my heart. Nobody gets to tell me not to do that. It's all about self-actualization and liberation and kind of me being me. I mean, and this secular progressivism has so captured the heart of God's people that we are so entertainment-driven, we are so resistant to spiritual authority. I mean, I recognize that about half of what I may have already said, you're thinking, I like Kyle, I can take that thing that he said, I'm going to put it in a Tupperware container and call it irrelevant to my life, but I'm going to still really like Jesus, right? And so there's this challenge within the people of God that we're becoming like our culture and culture is seeping into who we are and to the and it's easy then to say in the midst of all of this to look back to a time and to hope for a time that we were better it's easy we can maybe resonate with what God's people are saying that we are cut off that we are without hope I mean being a Christian is really hard it is super duper easy if you're not in Cuba but it's still hard it is still hard for some of you to be here on Sunday mornings for this hour and not be at the family gathering, right? It is still hard and the relationships between your parents or your grandparents or your siblings um, that this is who you are and, and, and this is part of your life and, and that's under, misunderstood by some people in your circles. It is still hard uh, at work. It is still challenging to be Jesus. And so it's easy to kind of adopt this mindset like God's people are in exile saying our hope is lost, we're cut off, we're, we're basically dead. So we're going to come in here, we're going to huddle up, we're going to hide together and everything will be okay. And if someone comes in the door and they want to join our club, that's great, but we need to protect ourselves. But that's not what we see happening in Ezekiel because the Lord has another, another plan in mind. This is about the revival of God's people and it happens when Ezekiel prays over the people of God and the Holy Spirit blows into them. 
The word ruach in Hebrew means breath, wind, and spirit. And it's repeated all in this passage because it's all about new creation. This is echoes of Genesis when God formed man out of the dust and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Remember, he says, command the four winds to bring the breath and they'll enter the bones and they will breathe and they will have life and they will be this army. And it's this idea that I will put my Holy Spirit in you and you will live. What I sense in our community is we are priming the pump for revival. We are priming the pump for revival. And what that means is, yes, releasing women to do a whole lot of things, but it also means we need to develop a dependency and a familiarity with the Holy Spirit. A dependency and a familiarity with the Holy Spirit. So if you want to know what 2020 is, 2020 is the year of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to teach on the book of Daniel um, in the spring because you notice among God's people, the further away they get from Jerusalem, the more supernatural things happen. Uh, we're working to bring a naturally supernatural conference to the church this fall because we want to increase our dependency on the Holy Spirit. And we want to do that and, and, and primarily just the one way we want to do it through prayer. Here's what I see people in Cuba doing. They're praying. And it's easy to cut ourselves off from the presence of the Holy Spirit when we're kind of freaked out by the miraculous stuff. But just remember, y'all, Zach did such a good job, Holden did such a good job of just showing the variety of ways that the Holy Spirit works in our life. And all of this is, is included. And, and sometimes we have this temptation to cut ourselves off from the Spirit because we're kind of freaked out by this other stuff. And we have good reason to be. Like, there's weird people on late night TV. Um, I saw some things that made me skeptical when I was in Cuba. Okay, but if Jesus has something for me, I want to receive it. Jesus has something for me. I really want to receive it. I really want to speak of a church that seeks the face of the Holy Spirit. That seeks the face of the Holy Spirit. In Luke, he says that in, in Luke, there's this verse. He says, um, Jesus says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, now notice this, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit, Luke says, to those who ask for them? To those who ask for him. I'm just trying to navigate us to a church where maybe we're just asking for the Holy Spirit to move in our midst. And I don't need us to become heebie-jeebie, whoopy-whoopy, let's get everybody slain in the Spirit, all of us by 1230. I'm just saying, can we be a church that says, Holy Spirit, you can lead. Holy Spirit, you can have your way. Holy Spirit, be the voice behind me and beside me that says this is the way walking out. Holy Spirit, would you, would you give us a sense of how we can reach our community? Because here's what we're really good at. If we go to the vision day next Saturday and we say, here's the five things that we're going to do. And by the way, God, if you could just bless that, we've got it, that's great. No, really, here's what you see what's happening. In any, any situation of revival and renewal in history, it's people praying and dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit that leads to change. That leads to change. What I, I want to see for us, what I want to see for us is a church that becomes dependent on the Holy Spirit, that seeks the face of the Holy Spirit, that asks for more of the Holy Spirit, that we would walk in the newness of new creation that Jesus is asking for us. And that means we need to pray. And, and listen, Pastora Audria prays from 7 a.m. till 12 every day. I think I can barely make it like four and a half minutes without looking at my phone. I can bake it without like barely four and a half minutes without thinking, boy, does cleaning the tub sound really good right now, right? And 
um, but it is prayer. And not all of us are super um, good with just praying on our own. And so I found a written prayer that I'm going to close us with now. Wanna, we'll put it out on social media for you to pray. But I really want us to become a church. I, I, I've tasted and seen of this. I want us to become a church that's chasing after the Holy Spirit together. Um, so let me pray. Uh, well, actually, Holden, could you put up that? We're going to pray this together. We're going to take communion, and then uh, we're going to go. So at the band, if you guys want to kind of get yourselves situated as we kind of chase the Holy Spirit together. Let's read this and pray together, okay? Oh, Holy Spirit, I have my own expectations about what I should and should not do. Okay, stop. Could you read with some, like, vigor? Like you mean it, okay? I now surrender to you my ideas, my limitations, my preferences, and my goals. Fill me, Holy Spirit, with all your supernatural gifts. Empower me to accept and grow in the supernatural life as much as the early disciples did. I want to be useful to you. I want to go where you lead me. Holy Spirit, send me forth, gifted and empowered to make a difference, spreading the good news of God's forgiving love. Amen. That was better. That was good. You sounded a tiny bit Cuban. You sounded a little passionate. Um, Can I have four people help me serve communion today? Communion, which is given to us, in which we experience the presence of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I need four people. Zach Weiler is one.